He said, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. And this is God's good word for us. So we say, thanks be to God. Uh, If you've joined North Wake in the last three months, uh, I may be a new face to you. Or if you just forgot about me, my name's Carson Cobb. Hi. Um, I just finished up a three-month ministry sabbatical that our leaders are given every few years. And so to start, let me just say thank you. I'm grateful to be part of a church that grants her ministry leaders uh, some time away from their responsibilities from time to time. Ministry is one of those whole life, soul, integrating jobs. And so some some time away is, is good for us. And I did get to do some fun things as well. Uh, We got to spend lots of time with our families back home for some important events. I had another brother who got married and uh, did some fishing with my brothers as well. One of them got pretty sick, and so did I, to be fair. Um, Did a good bit of traveling with our our kids. Those are some more fish that I was not allowed to catch. And I did a road trip out west um, with my dad, which I have not done for a long... That is not my dad. That was... The timing's just funny. That is an elk that I found in the Colorado prairie, clearly. Um, And then I did a couple of getaways with with Ashley, uh, which was great for us. And then uh, I had a good bit of time at home uh, with these crazy kiddos, which obviously uh, provided a setting of utter tranquility, almost constant uh, blissful reflection upon the nature of God was my sabbatical. Yeah. And uh, I actually, it feels like I took a vow of silence over sabbatical because now that I've preached back through one service, it's like, oh, voice is not used to this. So if you hear some frogs come out, it's from my vow of silence that lasted three seconds. Um, I also did dip my toes into the world of gardening this summer, and it turns out I grew a tomato plant. Um, The only problem with my plant was the planter that I planted it in. It was given to me by a friend who I think had the best of intentions, but the depth of the soil in this planter, it doesn't go all the way down to the ground. It just goes down about nine inches or so, maybe three boards down. And as my tomato plant grew, um, it, it needed some help staying in the box. As it got rained on, the leaves would get wet or even as good things happened, like lots of tomatoes coming out of, out of the vine, it would just get so heavy and it would tip right over and fall out of the planter. So I had to come up with all these really creative ways to put a wire trellis in there, and even that wasn't deep enough, so I'm tying off the trellis you know, with twine and fishing line. It looked great. Um, so why am I telling you all these details about uh, the inner workings of my sabbatical? Well, first of all, the, the metaphor of a vine or a plant and how it relates to a a trellis or a structure that gives it support is a helpful one that we'll return to over the next few weeks uh, to talk about the life of the church and the ministries and structures found therein. More on that in a second. But then also just on a more personal note, I mean, I stepped into sabbatical expecting to spend a good bit of time thinking about the spiritual depth and health of our church and all the little pieces that hold it up, and that was good, and I did, but I was also confronted with my own spiritual depth or lack thereof at points and found ways that maybe temporary patches or little hold, hold things together fix-ups. Uh, I was relying on that more than settling my roots deep down into the love of God. And I was just reminded, you know, it's like I don't, I don't do this work because it's my job, but because God has loved me and he's loved me first and I just want to love him back. 
So um, thank you for the time away. It was really, really meaningful. Now, back to the metaphor that has to do with this series. We're starting a new series today called The Vine Project, uh, Making Disciples. And many of you remember that for the past year and a half, there's a focus group of North Wakers called the Vine Project team that along with our elders, we were walking through a church evaluation process to try to make sure that we're on about the things that we think we should be on about. You know, and, and are the, the trellis pieces of our church, like the programs and structures and Sundays and just the way we do things around here, are those best aligned with supporting the work of the Vine growth in people? growth in people's lives as, as best we can. And you helped us with this. Uh, you gave us some feedback through uh, congregational surveys that we, we sent out and at some input uh, at a church family gathering meeting that we had earlier this year, which we're gonna have another one of those. Again, more details in a minute. But I think this series comes at a good time for us as a church. Right, we've been thinking a lot this year about the church. Our annual priority was treasuring church. So we've been looking at the scriptures uh, to think about what, is, what does God have to say about the church? Not just what does the church do or what has the church failed to do, but how does God see the church? And we looked at scriptures that show that the church is God's bride. It's God's body. It's his temple. It's his family. So the way the church is presented in Scripture, these metaphors convey a, a sense of the preciousness of the church to God. But this upcoming series, I think, will help us pivot and then turn our attention to, so what should the church do then? What should we be about? Given who we are, what we are, what do we do? I'm curious how you would answer that. What, what should churches do? Churches do a, a lot of things, but what's the point behind them? You know, the singing, uh, gathering together, preaching, even all the different ministries that we have, small groups, Lily Moms, Hope Counseling, Women's, women's Ministry, Men's Ministry, Student Ministry, Kids Ministry, all these and, and more and more. Why, why do we do these things? And, you know, you might say something like, well, to glorify God or to love God, which, of course, you would be absolutely spot on. But why these particular ministries? Why these things and not say just join a Christian skydiving club or something like that. And you're like, actually, I like that idea. Did that come out of the Vine Project? I'm here to sign up for it. No, it did not. But you, you never love someone in the abstract, right? When you really love a person, when you're in a love relationship, someone, you learn to love them and what they're about and what their passions are. You learn the most particular, meaningful ways to express your love. Sure, the heart behind it matters a ton, but knowing and loving an individual means you learn to know and love them and what they care about. So the title of the series probably drops a massive hint at where I'm heading with all this. We glorify God or love Him by aligning ourselves with His priorities in the world. What is He up to? What does He want to do? What does He long to see happen on our planet? What's God's agenda for the world? And you might sum it up in these two words, making disciples. So I have a few goals for this, this series, or a few hopes. Uh, and the first is that we would turn to the scriptures and that they would be for us a tuning note for us and for our lives. Like have you ever uh, been to an orchestra 
Uh, the very first thing that happens is as the orchestra comes out and they all get seated, I'll move over here. Sorry, camera folks, this may make it hard, but you can still hear me, hopefully, uh, if you're watching online. And don't worry, I'm not going to play a song, just one note. Um, and usually the piano or maybe the first violinist will play an A note. Just you hear one note and then all the other, you know, instruments start filling it out and you hear some tweaks going on, some tuning. I think it's one of the coolest parts actually of the symphony is just when you get there and they all start tuning up. Now, I was part of uh, youth orchestra for a bit when I was growing up and the sound you hear at the very beginning is a little different than that. It's a lot of sounds and a lot of different sounds. You're like, whoa, if we get this plane on the, off the ground, that'll be good. But um, this is what I hope this series can be for us. And it's one of the things that Sunday morning does for us often because we get out of tune. We need to gather together under the teaching of God's word. Come thou fount of every blessing. Tune my heart to sing your praise. Because I'm prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. And so from the bumps and bruises of life and our sinful nature, we get out of tune and we need to be tuned back up to the anchor note that Christ plays for us. Goal number one. Uh, the second is I hope that I can clarify some things around what we mean by making disciples. This is kind of a catchphrase uh, in Christian circles at least. We don't really use it much outside of church life, I don't think. Dictionary.com would say that the word disciple is an archaic term. So that means no one uses it except for us. Um, but there are countless books out there in you know Christian world about disciple making. And there's even some very good classes that you could take at Southeastern Seminary taught by some of our church members on making disciples. But even still, for us as church folk, I'm not sure that we're always super clear about what we mean by that. Maybe we have a certain picture in our minds of what disciple-making is, and that's kind of all there, all there is to it. And so because we have this particular picture in our minds, you know, it's got to be coffee, two people, Bible, weekly. Those are all amazing things, by the way. Um, you may become intimidated or discouraged because you just think, you hear, you should be making disciples, and you're like, yeah, but no idea what to do, actually, and not even sure I'm disciple-making material. You may not want to make disciples out of this material right here, but I hope that by clarifying uh, making disciples, I can help demystify that a bit and get us all on board with what it means to make disciples in your own life situation, because it can look very different from person to person, from season to season in life, but there are some, some uh, commonalities. And I, I think at this point, maybe I would just add for anyone who is here or, or listening that um, you're, you're struggling with Christianity. You're maybe doubting, considering, reconsidering Christianity. Even just the whole idea, you know, that a religion would seek to gain more uh, converts or adherence to its cause, that we would want to talk about our faith with others and, and bring them along with us can seem um, at best insensitive and maybe more than that, just downright arrogant. Uh, but I, I hope you understand that's it's not really where we're coming from. At one level, I do understand your concern, though. Uh, and yet, at the end of the day, I think we all have beliefs about the world that we think are right, and we think others are wrong. So even if you don't have a religion, or you think all religions are basically the same, and you don't think they should evangelize, well, that's because you think those types of exclusive beliefs are wrong and that your more open beliefs are, are right, right? <laughs> so we all kind of wish that people would think like us and believe like us. So I'm just trying to be honest about it from the get-go. 
And then third, uh, my third or last hope or goal from the series is to share with the church some of the results from the, that are emerging from the Vine Project. And yet, I'm not up here to make extended announcements uh, every week. I do need to like preach sermons. So we're going to use some of our December 4th prayer gathering to um, get down to the nitty-gritty in the words of the great church father, Nacho Libre. So we'll share more details um, at that time. If you're able to make it to that prayer meeting, we'll be praying through those things together. Uh, But today, to get us started, I want to talk about the question, why? Why make disciples? I'm going to make an argument. Why should that be the thing that we give our lives to? And again, I haven't really defined what that is yet at all, Um, More on that next week. I want to start with why. Whatever this is exactly that we should should be about, why is that? Now, of course, you might just answer, well, I guess there's Matthew 28, you know, the famous Great Commission passage where Jesus tells his disciples, go and make disciples. It's like, oh, there it is. Okay. He told us to do it. Let's do it. (laughs) Um, And again, you would be spot on in thinking that. Um, And we're going to look at that passage in the coming weeks, but I want to start from a slightly different angle. And what you might think of as a parallel passage to what Jesus said in Matthew 28, he says something very similar here in John 15. So let's return to the passage, and I want to take a crack at the case for making disciples, the cost of making disciples, and then briefly the capacity or the power for making disciples. So the case for it, the cost, and then the capacity for making disciples. Jesus says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. So he starts, he leads with this. You did not choose me, but I chose you. Now, why would Jesus say these words to his first disciples? on the night before his crucifixion. He said a lot of things, why would he say this? And why did John, the disciple who wrote this down for us, decide to keep these for us? Why did he think that you would need to hear them? Why did he think you would need to hear Jesus say, you did not choose me, I chose you? There's at least three reasons that I can think of for starters. And the first is that saying this fills us with a Hearing this fills us with a sense of privilege or confidence. It's a wonderful thing to be chosen, to be chosen by God, for him to look at you and say, I I choose you. I'm going to love you. I'm set my love upon you. It feels good to be chosen for a team, (laughs) you know, or a job, or a part in a play, or a relationship. To be chosen by Almighty God, it's meant to fill us with privilege. And on the flip side of that, though, I think it also can fill us with humility. Because he says, you did not choose me. (laughs) I chose you. We didn't earn a spot on Jesus' roster. There was nothing in us that would make us lovely or worthy when he set his love on us. But then third, and this is actually what I'm, I'm wanting to get at here, I think him saying this is meant to evoke commitment persevering in your commitment to Jesus. He's reminding us that we did not set the terms or conditions of a relationship with him. This is not like a negotiable job contract that you get to renegotiate every three to five years like a Major League Baseball player 
for a few million dollars difference one way or the other. Do you remember when Jesus called you? When you came to him? There was no conditions. It was, it was unconditional. His love for you was unconditional and your surrender to him was unconditional. You were desperate, helpless, and you came to him and you never would have gone looking for him if he had not come to you. Uh, the British poetess Jean Ingelow wrote this in her hymn, I sought the Lord and afterward I knew. He moved my soul to seek him, seeking me. It was not I that found, O Savior, true. No, I was found of thee. I find, I walk, I love, but oh, the whole of love is but my answer, Lord, to thee. For thou art long beforehand with my soul. Always thou lovest me. And I'm not actually trying to start a debate about determinism here at all. <laughs> Any theologian faithful to Scripture would affirm God's initiative in your relationship with Him. He loves first. And having chosen us, Jesus then goes on to say some more. He says, you didn't choose me, but I chose you, remember? And I appointed you. Our choosing comes with a commissioning. God's calling or election on someone is always meant to lead somewhere to blessing for others. The clearest example of this is uh, with Abraham in Genesis 12, where God says, I will bless you so that you will be a blessing. And this pattern continues all the way through the plot of the Bible. Now, I should say that God doesn't just love you because of your usefulness to him. You are more than a cog in a divine machine. He loves you. But he loves you far too much to let you think that his love should stop with you. It should go farther, spilling over, cascading. So he appoints his disciples for a purpose when he chooses them. He has an agenda. He has an agenda for the whole world, and we get to play a part in that. He has something good for us to do with our lives, something for us to be about, a, a reason that we can live with significance and passion in our time here. Now, it's interesting. Um, it seems more and more that one of the most pervasive features of modern life is boredom. Boredom. And you're like, yeah, I, could, I hear that about right now in the middle of these long sermons. I understand the boredom a little bit. Hey, easy. It's my first Sunday back. Just chill, chill. Take it easy. Uh, but seriously, uh, boredom, I'm sure, has always been part of the human condition. But um, more and more... we it seems like we're having a wider experience of it. We didn't even have it, like the term boredom until maybe the late 19th century. And so now there's whole teams of researchers and books out there dedicated to studying and understanding why does everyone feel so bored? Uh, not that we're not busy. We're still extremely busy people and entertained to the max. But it's like the more entertainment we have, the worse we are at tolerating boredom and the more bored that we feel. Um, in The New Yorker, a reporter, Margaret Talbot, wrote an article in which she cites a 2014 study that demonstrated how hard people find it to sit alone in a room and think, even for 15 minutes or less. Two-thirds of the men in the study and a quarter of the women opted to shock themselves with a shock button rather than do nothing at all, even though 
they had been allowed to test out how the shock felt before the experiment, and most of them said they would pay money to never feel that feeling again. Now, Aaron Westgate, um, who's a social psychologist at the University of Florida, and uh, those gators came up with the shock study, obviously, that um, goes on to explain that her research, in her research on boredom, that boredom is not primarily due to a lack of stimuli or stimulation, but it mostly leads from a lack of significance, a lack of meaning. What's the point of this? You can endure a shock button. You can stuff envelopes all day if you believe in the cause behind it, if it's meaningful, if there's a reason for it. And so she comments that maybe we seem to have lost as a culture our, our meaning for living. What are we here for? How about you? Would you say that you're bored? Not like at this moment in time, but like with your life. Does it feel like it's just one big merry-go-round? You know, every week and weekend and year is the same thing. The God of the universe invites us to be participants in his plan for the world, to bring together people from all nations, to worship at his throne, to live in harmony with each other, to transfer broken people into the kingdom of his beloved son and transform them to be like him making disciples. Christians might get bored. We might. I get bored, you get bored. But we have every reason not to be. We've been chosen for a purpose. And this is it. Jesus says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you, I gave you a job, that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. Go and bear fruit, he says. Doesn't this sound kind of similar to what he says in Matthew 28 in the Great Commission? All authority in heaven on earth has been given to me, therefore go. And there, he says, make disciples. Here, he says, bear fruit. I think he's talking about the same same thing. So if you're a follower of Jesus, then you are chosen and appointed and empowered, indeed created, to bear fruit, to make disciples. Again, that can look a lot of different ways at a lot of different times. More on that in coming weeks. But what I love about this metaphor of fruit bearing is that it highlights something really important about what Jesus is asking of us here, what he's calling us to. Making disciples is not some other additional Christian chore to add to your list. This is not one more thing you have to do. This is something that you were made for. Jesus doesn't want his disciples to just live a busy life. He wants you to live a fruitful life, a full life. As he says in John 10, I have come that they would have life and have it to the full, abundant life. Is fruit bearing difficult? Is making disciples hard? I suppose so, but it's what we were made for. And this theme didn't start with Jesus here in this teaching. This is woven all throughout the scriptures. It's interesting that he chooses this as a metaphor because at the very beginning of the Bible, page one, Genesis one, as the first man and woman are created, it says this, that God blessed them and then he said to them, be fruitful, multiply. Now, of course, initially, this is understood as a physical command to reproduce. 
But the Bible keeps riffing on this metaphor in a way that shows that fruitfulness is about much more than just making babies, okay? Psalm 1, blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season. Its leaf does not wither, and all that he does, he prospers. Or in Jesus' uh, parable of the four soils, the good soil, or the good soul, you might say, are those who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit. Some 30, some 60, some 100-fold. In Paul's prayer for the Colossian church, which we studied earlier this year, not too long ago, Paul's prayer for this church is that they would be filled with the knowledge of God's will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Uh, Paul elsewhere teaches that this is one of the reasons that Christ saved us, so that we would be fruitful. He says, likewise, my brother, you, brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. So all throughout Scripture, uh, people are compared with trees and vines and fruit and stuff like that. Medical doctor Matthew Sleeth, who actually spoke here a few years ago in his book, Reforesting Faith, comments on the irony of how much trees, which take in CO2 and give us oxygen, resemble the human bronchial system with our lungs, which receive oxygen and then give the trees back carbon dioxide. What's my point? You were made for this, to bear fruit. The human desire to reproduce runs much deeper than mere evolutionary drive to pass along your DNA. There's a longing in your soul to bear fruit, fruit that lasts, to use your life in a way that lasts. So why be about making disciples? Because you were made for so much more than just promotions, vacations, or movies, or retirement. Not that any of those things are bad and you can use them well, but we were made to bear fruit for God that will have significance, that will last. And again, looks different for different people, but this is what we're called to be about. So that's the case for making disciples. You get to live a not boring, eternally difference-making life in seeing more and more people glorify the beloved Son of God and to take one step closer to Jesus. But of course, there is a cost also to bearing fruit, one that would make you question like, okay, why would I do this? Is giving my life to making disciples really, really worth it? This is only implied in Jesus, uh, verse 16, in his statement there, but it becomes really obvious in the passages that immediately follow. Like as soon as verse 18, Jesus says, and the world is going to hate you if you live this way. Earlier in chapter 12, he uses this same imagery to describe his own death. In John chapter 12, there are some Greek people that come to see Jesus, so non-Israelites. Most of his ministry has been limited to, reserved for, the people of Israel during his, his life. But now there's some people from Greece that want to talk to Jesus. And when he's approached by them, it prompts a really interesting statement. He's like, oh, not like, oh, hi, you're from Greece. That's cool. Let's talk about that. He's got something else to, to say. Now, among those is John chapter 12, who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, 
who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. So Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. What's he getting at? If it dies, it bears much fruit. Of course, he's speaking first of his own death. That in order for you and I to come to God, he will have to give up his life for us. And he will. But he doesn't stop there. He has more to say. And I kind of wish he had stopped there just a little bit. But he's got got more to say. Verse 25, he said, Whoever, so this is us now, loves his life, loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. And if anyone serves me, he must follow me. In other words, living a fruitful life for God will cost you. It may not be your literal death, but it will be death to something or some things. I've read this quote before from John Stott, but it's, it's worth hearing again. He says, the greatest single secret evangelistic or missionary effectiveness is the willingness to suffer and die. It may be a death to popularity by faithfully preaching the unpopular biblical gospel, or maybe a death to pride by use of modest methods and reliance on the Holy Spirit, or maybe a death to racial or national prejudice by identification with another culture, or to material comfort by adopting a simple lifestyle. But the servant must suffer if he is to bring light to the nations, and the seed must die if it is to multiply. In 1865, um, William Booth, who founded the humanitarian, and at that time, very evangelistic organization called the Salvation Army, he was riding through the slums of the east side of London. And as he rode along and looked upon the pitiful state of people living in those slums at the beginning of the industrial era, he began to imagine Uh, these people in a different way. And he he later wrote this down in what he would call a vision of the lost. And this is a picture that someone drew to represent his, his vision. He said, I saw a dark and stormy ocean. Over it, the black clouds hung heavily. Through them every now and then, vivid winds moaned and waves rose and foamed, towered and broke, only to rise and foam, tower and break again. In that ocean, I thought I saw myriads of poor human beings plunging and floating, shouting and shrieking, cursing and struggling and drowning. And as they cursed and screamed, they rose and shrieked again. Then some sank to rise no more. And I saw out of this dark, angry ocean a mighty rock that rose up with its summit towering high above the black clouds that overhung the stormy sea. And all around the base of this great rock, I saw a vast platform. And on this platform... I saw with delight a number of poor, struggling, drowning wretches climbing out of the angry ocean. And I saw that a few of those who were already safe on the platform were helping the poor creatures still in the angry waters to reach the place of safety. Here and there, there were actually some who helped jump in the water, regardless of the consequence and their passion to rescue the perishing. But as I looked on, I saw that the occupants of that platform were quite a mixed company. That is, they were divided into different sets or classes, and they occupied themselves with different pleasures and and enjoyments. But only a very few of them seemed to make it their business to get people out of the sea. 
What puzzled me the most was the fact that although at one time all of them had been rescued, nearly everyone seemed to have forgotten all about it. Anyway, it seemed the memory of its darkness and danger no longer troubled them at all. And what seemed equally strange and perplexing to me was that these people did not even seem to have any care, that is no agonizing care, about the poor perishing ones who were struggling and drowning right before their very eyes, many of whom were their own husbands and wives, brothers and sisters, and even their own children. And this was William Booth's indictment of the church of his day. There's many struggling, starving, lost masses of people that were not being sought after. That even though they and we have been rescued from a terrible fate, we forgot all about what it was like to live under that sort of darkness without hope. After imagining this scene in his carriage, Booth reportedly ran home and told his wife, Darling, I've found my destiny. And out of that, he started the, the Salvation Army. And it did cost him, and it will cost us. To live for making disciples requires risk and sacrifice. It's easy to withdraw from that and just live for whatever amusements or short-term relaxations that we can find. And so to do this, we do need help. We need a capacity or a strength for making disciples beyond what we can muster, beyond what we can sustain. And Jesus gets at this in the last part of verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you. And I appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, that your fruit should abide, that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give to you. We can ask whatever we need in Jesus' name for his cause and for his mission. The Father is ready and willing to give what you need. Maybe you find today that your zeal is cold for the needs of others, the state of others, caring about their spiritual life and vitality. The Father can quicken that flame in your heart. Confess that to him. Ask him for passion again. He'll give it to you. Or maybe you feel inadequate, like I can just barely keep my own act together, much less concern myself with anyone else's spiritual well-being. Maybe you feel that way. You feel overwhelmed by your own sin or shame. But the reality is the Father loves to work through broken vessels. In fact, that's probably his preferred method to work because then you know all the glory and all the credit goes to him. Ask him for faith. He is ready to give that to you. Maybe you are just weary and worn out, even from years of faithful service to God, and you feel like you're not seeing any progress in anyone's life. Ask him for patience, for endurance. Bearing fruit is not an overnight thing. It requires seasons of waiting, of praying. He will give it to you. As Jesus says just moments before this passage in verse 4, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing anyway. So the strength and the capacity for living a life 
that is about God's agenda, isn't about helping others take another step towards Jesus, to live a life, the strength and capacity for making disciples is not found in you. It's not found in your pastors or in your leaders. It's found in Jesus Christ. And if you will stay close to him, make your home with him each day, then slowly but surely you'll see that he will use your life for his glory and to bring others closer to him. So don't, don't live like my tomato plant and like I live so many times when we settle for shallow soil. Let your roots sink deep down into Jesus Christ. Make your home with him each day. He says in verse nine of this chapter, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you've lost your passion to be about what God is about, the first step is just to step back into his love, to return home to the infinite love of God that Jesus poured out on you through his death upon a cross. Why give yourself to making disciples and learn what that means? Why learn what that looks like in your own life? Because this is God's agenda for the world. And Jesus chose you for it. He made you for it. He gave his life to make it happen and he gives his power for this even today. So let's pray. So Lord, may your word for us be today that tuning note that we need to hear. That we would recenter, re-anchor ourselves in what you long for and are up to in the world. And if we've settled, Lord, if any of us have settled for a life of personal comfort over fruit bearing, or if we're discouraged in that because we feel like the winter has been so long, we want to bring that to you today, Lord. We want to talk with you about that. You've promised to give us what we need to be fruitful and pleasing to you. And so we ask that you meet with us now as we seek you, as we give you our lives once again, as we place them in your hands, take them and do what you see as good. Quicken us by your spirit, Lord, we pray in Christ. Amen.